Well, hey, good morning, Brookside. It's great to, uh, great to see you this morning. Uh, wasn't worship fun this morning? Man, you guys are on it today. You sound great. So I well, hope you're having a great weekend. And if you are a guest here with us this morning, um, special welcome to you. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, I want to um, give you a quick update on something before we jump into our text this morning. You might remember this. About eight weeks ago, we were in a series, a four-part series that we call Front and Center, And uh, in that series, what we were talking about uh, was four things that you really have to fight for, Uh, four things that if they're going to stay in your mind, if they're going to be important to you, you've got to work at it. You've got to keep these things in front of you. And we concluded that last message by asking an important question. We said this, we said, if Jesus were me, who would he see? If Jesus were me, who would he see? Who would Jesus notice if he were me? Who would he take the time to talk to if he were me? Who would he give his best to? Who would he engage with? If Jesus were me... Who then would would he see? And one of the things that we saw as we looked to the scriptures is this pattern in the Gospels that who Jesus oftentimes saw was he oftentimes saw people that were actually forgotten by most other people. But Jesus oftentimes didn't forget them and he slowed down and he stopped and he talked to the oftentimes forgotten. And so we concluded that morning by talking about an opportunity that we have as a church to really see the forgotten. Uh, You might not know this, but right here in Douglas County, we talked about how there are about 1,200 inmates just in Douglas County alone, down at the Douglas County Correction Center. And we talked about how we have the opportunity to actually adopt a group of these inmates. And, And our hope is not only can people come to this place and to hear the message about Jesus Christ and what does it mean to, to live with him and for him and, and, and what does it mean to, to come to, to life in Christ and all of that. We hope that not only that happens in this place, but we shared with you, hey, we're leaning in and we're saying, Lord, would you give us an opportunity where every Sunday down there at the Douglas County Correction Center, we could put on a service for a group of inmates. And so it's been a lot of fun to kind of be walking in those waters few weeks ago, we had um, just a great group that got together. They've expressed interest. They've, many of them have taken a tour. And uh, so we got together and we just talked about next steps and, and we're working the process of building that team right now so that, again, we're seeing, Lord, we kind of open-handedly, Lord, would you have this for us and can we make a difference down there, not only in these inmates' lives, but also in their families' lives. And maybe even God would allow us to impact them uh, when they get out. So Many of you have come up to me, though, since we first talked about that, and you've said, hey, I didn't jump in right away, but I heard about it, I am interested, I want some more information. So I wanted to just share this uh, email address with you. If you have questions or you want to know, hey, how do I get connected in this way, jailinfo at brookside.net is where if you email us at that, just say, hey, I'm interested, I want more information, we'll uh, do everything that we can to get you connected. We'll also keep all of you in the loop, and uh, I would ask you, I asked you that morning, But I would ask you again this morning, would you be praying about this opportunity? You know, it's really exciting to kind of be at the ground level of something like this and just kind of seeing the process of how things come together and setbacks and then big steps forward and things like that. And so though, would you just continue to pray that God would open the door for us to be able to make a difference in that place? You know, we want to continue to be a church that's on the move, that we're looking at our city and we're saying, Lord, we want to be used by you in big ways in our city. So if you would pray uh, to that end for this specific thing, uh, that would be, that'd be great. Well, today we're in Luke chapter 16, and we're in our series called The Best News Ever. And what this series is doing is we're working through, chapter by chapter, through the New Testament book of Luke. And what we're doing is we're seeing that the gospel is coming to life. We're looking at the words of Jesus Christ, and we're asking ourselves the question, okay, what does the gospel mean for me? 
What does the gospel mean for me, not just in one area of my life, but in every area of my life, in my thoughts, in my feelings, in my actions, in my decisions, in my relationships? What does the gospel mean for me? How does the gospel grip me? How does it change my life? And so that's for the series that we're in. Today we're going to be in a, a text that's going to lead us to, and, and my hope for you really is this this morning, that you will be able to walk out of here and you'll be thinking about the things in life that matter the most. The text is going to bring that to life so to kind of set it up, though, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had something happen to you, and the moment that it happened, it all of a sudden took your thinking maybe from surface-level thinking, kind of just in the fray and the everyday matters of life, to a whole higher level? It, it helped you think about the things that are actually of most importance. Have you ever had one of those circumstances take place in your life where it just it, it caused you to really take stock in the things that matter most? It slowed you down. It, it put you in another gear. On Halloween night this last week, um, our neighborhood, like many of yours, was probably, ours was just hopping uh, with kids. I actually called Christina about 15 minutes in, about 6.15. She was dropping off one of our kids, and I said, hey, can you pick up some more candy? Because I'm about half out, and this parade just started, you know? And, and so she did that, and we had a great night. We put this little fire pit in our, our driveway, and some of our neighbors came over. And, and so I'm talking to one of them at one point, and, and Chris speaks up, and he says, hey, did you hear about the accident that happened up on the highway on Tuesday morning? And I said, yeah. I said, Christina had told me about it. A, a car tried to miss a deer that was crossing the highway. It ended up hitting it, and, and that led to that car hitting another car, and then that car hit another car, and it was just a multiple car crash, and, and uh, it was a, kind of a big deal. And he said, as that was all happening, he said, our, our, my daughter, 16, she's 16, had just, just left for school. And he said, so I'm standing outside, though. I just happened to be outside. And he said, I heard the first accident. And then I heard tires screeching. And then I heard the second crash. And then I heard more tires screech. And then I heard the third crash. And he said, and I just looked at my son who was outside with me. And he said, I just said, oh, no. So he picks up the phone, you know, and he calls his daughter. No answer. He texts her. He says, hey, where are you? A few minutes later, she writes back, um, I'm at school, you know. But isn't it true that in those moments, his thinking went to another level? In that moment, he thought about the things that matter most. I guarantee you, he was not thinking about whether her room was clean or not in that moment. He didn't care if she was taking care of the new car that she's got. He didn't care about any of that. Isn't it true that those, those moments take you to a different level? They jolt you a little bit. Maybe for you, you've gone through a, a serious illness or somebody in your life has, and it's caused you to think very differently about life. Maybe you have the lack of or you've just come out of a significant relationship. And that kind of life-jolting experience for you, it's really caused you to ask that question, what matters most? What should I really be concerned about? You know, those experiences, while they're hard and while none of us want to sign up for them, none of us like those moments, but isn't it true sometimes those moments give us the gift of perspective? They give us the gift of perspective. They allow us to step out of the fray of life and just go, okay, is the fray of life leading me to what's most important? Like, is my everyday activity really leading me to the things that matter most? Those situations do that. In today's passage, we're going to get one of those. It's one of those step out of the fray moments to dive deeper and to really ask that question, what's most important in life? So here's where we're going. I think we're going to be able to pull three things from the text this morning. Here they are. Number one, we're going to get a, a serious reminder of, of eternal realities. Number two, we're going to see that we're going to get a call to live with a sense of urgency and intentionality. And then lastly, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to this text as we often do the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so let me pray for us now. 
And church, let's just pray with open hearts this morning and say, Lord, I want to hear from you. So yeah, would you pray with me now and then we'll dive in. Lord, we want to thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to gather in this place, Lord. We're so grateful for it. And we just say to you this morning, would you speak to us now? Lord, I think of the person that's maybe here this morning and they just need to be reminded of the goodness of God in their lives. Or I think of the person maybe that's here this morning and they're, they're spiritually seeking. They're wondering, who are you, Jesus? What does faith in you look like? Lord, I pray that this morning the gospel would come to life for them and they would cross over and say, I believe. And then, Lord, I pray for the rest of us as well, Lord, that as we hear your word, you would stir in us, Lord, a passionate desire to respond. Lord, lead us not to just hear your word and do nothing with it, but might today, Lord, we see you do things in our lives and prompt us in certain ways, Lord. So we love you, we thank you for it, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, if you've got a Bible, turn with me, click there on your phone, whatever. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going. Try to imagine the scene. We're going to start this morning in verse 19. It says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the, the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where there was torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Verse 30, No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now let's just address the elephant in the room. This is a thicker, harder passage. Would you agree? You don't read this at a wedding. You don't read this at Christmas service. For some of you, you just heard that and you thought, this is odd. This is even confusing. But honestly, church, this is why it's good for us to work through books of the Bible. Because it takes us to passages like this, and instead of skipping over them, when we take God's word seriously, as we do as a church, we say, okay, we're going to lean in, and we're going to ask questions. Jesus, what do you want us to hear? What do you want us to know? How do you want us to respond to what you've given us in this passage? Now know this, this text raises some really good questions. It raises questions about heaven and hell and about the realities of eternity. It raises questions about, okay, how do I respond to that? And, and what you're going to find this morning is that this, this story, in a lot of ways, it's a very straightforward teaching. Let's look at the story. 
Notice this in the first scene, in verses 19 through 21. We learn about two characters. They're central to the to this story. It's actually a story about two men and five brothers. And only one of the two men, only one of the two main characters actually has a speaking part. We first see that there's this guy, and he's known as the rich man. Now, what's interesting, and scholars point this out, they're in agreement on this, many of them, is that this man is referred to as the rich man, and he's not named because that's actually a not-so-subtle hint that this man is actually far from God because where is his identity? This man is known not by a name. This man is known by the title of rich man. We also know this about the man. He's dressed in purple. He's dressed in fine linen. Now, we know this about uh, just the, the, the culture that they lived in. You didn't get to wear purple unless you were of elite status. That color, the dye to even make that was from this expensive sh- uh, shellfish. So you didn't, you didn't just walk around in purple if you were just anybody. This person was of elite status, very, very wealthy. And there was, there was no faking in that culture. There was no, no posing and just buying it on credit and just trying to look the part. No, not at all. Now, when this man would, he would have walked the streets, people would have stood back and they would have gone, oh, it's the rich man. He was dignified. He was important. He was very clearly set apart by his wealth. Luke goes on to say that he lived in luxury. So even not just his clothes, but his activities defined him. If you got invited to his party, you got invited to quite a party, and you were quite something to be on his invitation list. Verse 20 says this. It says, at his gate. Again, it's another not subtle indicator about what this story is all about. At his gate. Now, don't think of like maybe the gate going to your backyard. Don't think of like a little wooden gate that keeps in the, in the dog. No. Think a big, beautiful gate, maybe attached to a fence that surrounded a big complex called his home. This man was distinguished, and he was known because of his wealth. On his obituary, it would have been very simple, but also very sad. It would have been a simple description. The rich man. We also know that the rich man had some religion in him. He talks about Abraham in the passage. Now, we know that he's far from God, and so this religion didn't penetrate his heart. It was just maybe activity that he went through. The circumstances of the other man, though, couldn't be any more different than that of the rich man. Think about this. From total luxury behind the gate to on the other side of the gate, you've got total desperation. You've got total need. You've got someone on one side of the gate that's esteemed and they're important, and they're self-sufficient. But on the other side of the gate, you've got someone that's forgotten, looked down upon. You've got someone that in this culture would have been completely, completely overlooked. Lazarus is as desperate as they come. The text says this about him. Lazarus is a beggar, and he's covered with sores. He's sick. It's probably, again, An indicator straight from the text, he's malnourished. That's why he has those sores. Lazarus waits at the gate. Imagine it. Try to picture it. In that society, there there was no way that the poor got fed. The poor didn't just go down to open door mission and get a hot meal. Didn't have it. And so in that culture, if you were a Lazarus, what you did is you you would go to the, the rich and you would beg. And you would hope that the rich would have mercy on you. And so it's likely that Lazarus is outside the city gate and he knows that they had a party the night before. And he just hopes that that servant maybe of the rich man will come out and just have mercy on him and just share some of the scraps with him. 
It says that he has these sores on his back, and this is how low he is. No one is caring for him. Even the dogs licked his sores. Unlike the rich man, though, notice this. He has a name, Lazarus. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. His name, Lazarus, or Eleazar, Eleazar, which it means this, God has helped. Which, don't you think that that's a little bit ironic? I mean, if you walked up to Lazarus, and you walked up to the rich man, and you asked anybody on the street, even a fool, and you said, hey, which one do you think God has helped? Which one do you think God has helped? The rich man or Lazarus? That, that answer would be very simple, wouldn't it? doesn't seem quite right. And while the rich man's obituary would have been very simple, rich man, no one would have remembered Lazarus. No one would have known him. Quick time out. We have to ask this question about this text. Does this parable suggest that those who are rich are destined to go to hell? Is that what it's saying? The answer is no. See, this man's problem wasn't his fine clothes, and this man's problem wasn't his nice house, and this, this man's problem wasn't that he had a gate around his home. This man's problem was that his pursuit, that his trust was in the, those things instead of in God himself. He didn't have too much. He had too little of the things that matter most. This man was in poverty towards God. You look at the scriptures and you see plenty of godly people with wealth. David, Solomon, Esther, Abraham, and others. And while Jesus, we know this as he thought about the poor, Jesus had great compassion on the poor. But we also know this. You look at the scriptures, the Proverbs are pretty clear on this. If you're poor because you're lazy, because you won't work, in the scriptures, that's called a sin. It's not godly to be, to be poor. Not at all. That wasn't the case with Lazarus. Let's keep going. The second scene is this. Now, after the death of both of these men, and we discover that death changes everything for these men. You may have heard this uh, commonly said statement, death is the great equalizer. Death does not recognize class distinction. So both of these men, they have gone to a specific place into an eternal existence. And the first thing that we can draw from this text, the first takeaway, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. We get a very clear reminder of eternal realities. A very clear reminder. The Bible is clear that after death, we will all end up in one of two places. All of us. Verse 26. Abraham replies to the rich man's request. It says, and besides all of this, he says, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. A couple of weeks ago, you might have seen this in the news, the world's largest bridge over a sea was opened. This bridge, it connects people from Hong Kong and Macau to the Chinese mainland. It's quite a bridge. It's 34 miles long, spans this huge chasm of sea. And when you cross it, I don't know how this happens, but when you cross it, your heart rate and your blood pressure are monitored. How do they do that? I don't know. Only certain people can actually cross on this bridge as well. In addition to that, if that's not odd enough, if you yawn more than three times in 20 seconds, a yawn cam will take your picture and raise an alert. How do they do that? I don't have a clue. We're actually, though, going to install some yawn cams in here. <laughs> and so if you feel in a couple of weeks kind of a little, you know, like you'll know what's going on. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, 
You've got to hear this from the scriptures this morning. There is a chasm between eternity with, in, with life with God and eternity without life with God that cannot be bridged after the grave. Let that sink. That's the message of the scriptures. It's that straightforward. It's that heavy. There's a chasm after the grave that can no longer be bridged. And that's why for us as a church, and even as you leave our auditorium and you walk in, out into our hall, you see it painted right on the wall. That's why our mission is, is so important to us as a church, helping people find and follow Jesus Christ, because we want to do everything we can on this side of the grave to help people understand you can cross that chasm. That through Jesus Christ, you can be rescued, you can be redeemed, you can experience life with God right now, right here, and for all of eternity. It's also why we have this value called intentional relationships. Because we believe that if, if the gospel has been given to me, like if I've received the free gift of God, it's not about anything that I do, but it's about this free gift that I receive from God. But if I've received it, we believe that God puts us on this planet to help others receive it. And so my neighbor isn't just my neighbor for my neighbor's sake, for, for nothing. It's very intentional. We believe that God gives you coworkers for a reason. And so that when we see them, that we love them and that we long for people to know the God that loved us enough to send his son to die for us so that we might know him. It pushes us in a great way. Let's keep going. Look at the uh, verse 27 with me. It says this. Now picture this. There's this chasm post-death that can't be crossed. Verse 27, he, the rich man, answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, he says, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. In other words, he's saying, I don't want them to come here. They don't want to come here. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, he's saying, they have the message of this book. We have the message of this book. We have the words of Moses. We have the law. We also have the words of Jesus Christ. And that's enough. Because when you have the clear message of the gospel, and then you unite that with the Holy Spirit illuminating the heart and the mind as the Holy Spirit does, that's how we come to know Christ, and that's all you and I need. And what he's saying to this man is this, it wouldn't matter if you had more than that. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, no, no miracle is going to help. No, the greatest miraculous event that could take place right before their eyes, it wouldn't matter anyway. I think we have to ask this question. Why is the rich man in hell? And why is the poor man in heaven? Is that how it works? I mean, one economic class goes up, one economic class goes down. If you're blessed here in this life, you're not going to be blessed in eternity. But if you're miserable here, all of a sudden you'll be blessed for all of eternity. Is that how it works, rich versus poor? No. Just look, just think about how rich Abraham was, and that idea quickly gets debunked. The point being made here. And that's what we got to look at when we look at a parable. We have to be careful how we read parables. 
The point being made here is that while the rich man had access to the words of the prophets, he rejected them over and over again. Even if his brothers and his, his brothers heard the gospel, even if his brothers heard the words of the prophets, they would reject him just like the rich man had because their hearts are like stone. And we don't have to look far in Luke chapter 16. Just flip back a few verses and you see what was at the root of the rich man's problem. Verse 13. It says, no one, we know this to be true, don't we, church? No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and you're going to love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and you're going to despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, hey, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the problem with the rich man in this story wasn't that he was rich. It's that his riches became his idols. That he began to find his worth in them. That when he looked at his riches, that was his security. That was his purpose. That's the longing of his heart. The problem wasn't that he had stuff. The problem was that his stuff had him. Your God. And my God is anything or anyone that captivates the longing of our hearts. It could be your identity. It could be tied to your purpose. It's what matters most to you. And so ask yourself that question this morning. Who's at the center for you? It could be a person, it could be intimacy, it could be a house, it could be a number in the bank account, it could be your children, it could be anything. Who's at the center? Who's your idol? Who's on the throne of your life? Who do you in essence worship because they get the deepest or it gets the deepest longing of your heart? Instead of using his wealth to trust God with it and to win others, this man used it to his own end. He was self-sufficient. He didn't need God. He lived saying, I don't need God. Now this parable, know this, it's not meant to answer every question about the afterlife. And Jesus is teaching us this, though, so that we'll take very much uh, seriously and really to heart life on this side of eternity, life on this side of the grave. That's why Jesus is giving us this parable. And when you read a parable, you have to ask that question, what's the point? I've heard it said this way, the main things when you read a parable, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. This was a warning story. This was meant to inform them and to push them to live a certain kind of life. It was meant for you and I as well to give us some handles about eternity, the very serious realities of eternity, but then to push us and to say, okay, in light of that, how do you live? What does that mean for us? So what do we know so far? So far we know this. Heaven and hell are real. They exist. We know that death brings division we know that there's a distinction when a person dies. There's a distinction between humans. One goes to a place of union with their maker. The other to a place of isolation and torment because of the lack of the presence of God. Hell is the agony of not being able to love or to be loved. It's living in the regret of lost opportunity. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. And the reason I think that he spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament, and if you read the rest of his teachings, you know this, he didn't want anyone to experience it. No one. Back to the story, verse 24. 
Notice what this man's life is all about. It's all about him. Even in hell, he's like giving out orders. He's still being bossy. Verse 24, it says, So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. In other words, get Lazarus and let him be my little water boy. I walked by him in my entire life while he begged at the, at the gate of my house. But now, now why doesn't he serve me? Takeaway number two, here it is. Jot this down if you're taking notes. This text gives us a call to live with a sense of urgency and a, tense, and a sense of intentionality, graciously and kindly, but to live so intentionally. In John chapter 14, Jesus is comforting his disciples, and his disciples are going to watch him go to the cross. And so he knows that, and so he's comforting them, and so he makes a statement to them. He, he says, hey, where I am going, I am, he says, don't let your hearts be, don't let, yeah, don't let your hearts be troubled. Where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But as he talks about that, one of them, Thomas, kind of gets, you know, maybe a little nervous or just confused or whatever. And he, he speaks up and he says, yeah, but Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I'm going to go to the cross. But no, I'm going somewhere after that. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then you're going to come to me. But Thomas is like, well, that's great. I'm, I'm loving the place. But how do we get there? How do we get there? And then Jesus says very plainly. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And what Jesus was doing is he was giving this incredible invitation. It's like this huge welcome mat. He's saying, if you want to experience abundant and good life, if you want purpose, if you want to walk through life and go, you know what, I'm making a difference for the things that matter most. Jesus was saying, hey, I'm inviting you into that kind of life. If there's a hole in your heart that you keep trying to fill with this and that, but it never seems to quite get filled up, Jesus is saying, I'm the way. I love you. I'm the truth. I love you. I'm the life. Come to me. During the days of the early church, when Peter and John stood before this thing called the Sanhedrin, they were being questioned by these chief priests. But they said to them in that moment, they said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we, we must be saved. And what they were doing is they weren't trying to dissuade people from coming to know Christ. What they were saying is this, hey, please come to know the God who loves you. Please cross over the chasm between death and life while you still can. And so they pleaded with the very people that were persecuting them. As we journeyed through the book of Acts, I love this. We saw the Apostle Paul, he's being, he's being persecuted. These people, are, these people are literally trying to take his life. And he says this to them. He says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, guys that were persecuting him, but all of you who are listening to me today may become what I am. Because Paul had experienced life with God. Paul understood what it meant to be far from God. Paul also understood what it meant to walk in relationship with him. And he said, I don't care how long it takes, short time or long time. I'm praying for you because I long for you to know the goodness and the grace of God. Some of you feel that way. You've experienced the goodness and the grace of God, and you long for the people that you love to experience it as well. 
couple of years ago, I read a book by a pastor named Kerry Shook. Uh, the book was titled One Month to Live, and he and his wife had done ministry for years and years. And, and over the course of the years, they walked through a lot of people experiencing the last days of their life. And, and they began to notice something about the attitudes and the actions of people, particularly when people were given a time frame, people that were given six months or one month. And he said this, he said, I noticed about these people that as they lived with the end in mind, he said they would do things that they always wanted to do. They would say things that they actually always wanted to say. They'd ask for forgiveness, and they would give forgiveness more freely. They took more risks. It seemed like they had this whole new clarity on their priorities. So we said, he and his wife, why wait? Why can't we live like that every day? Let me ask you, this question's for me as well. If I knew, if you knew that you only had one month to live, what would you do differently? Notice I didn't say, would you do anything differently? Because I know you would, and I know I would as well. What would you do differently? I think this passage, I think it lights a fire under us. I think God's word this morning, it motivates us to say, okay, if I'm in the fray of life this morning, I just want to step above it a little bit and say, okay, Lord, Am I living my life for the things that matter most? Am I living my life for the things that matter most? Lord, am I missing out on any of the things that you would call me to that matter most? You know, oftentimes, though, I think this is true. When you think of the things that matter most, oftentimes you find that what matters most has a very close friend. And that friend has a name. And that friend's name is Risk. It's living outside what's oftentimes comfortable. Have you ever found that? You press into God and all of a sudden you feel like, whoa, I can take a risk though. I got to step into some waters that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Last weekend I was at a wedding and I took our 10-year-old daughter, Ashlyn, with me and she loves getting dressed up. So we just kind of had a fun date around this wedding. And, and on the way there we were talking and I was just mentioning to her, I I'm not sure exactly how it came up, but I, I said to her, I said, you know, sometimes God is going to ask you to do things that are out of your, your zone, where you feel comfortable, where you feel like, okay, yeah, this is just easy for me. Sometimes you're going to be nervous for things, but it's in those times that if you press in, you'll actually see that God do the most activity in your life. And while I'm telling her, it's like, I'm going, this is for me. Yeah, I know it's for me. And so I was actually telling her, I think this is where it came from. I was telling her about my journey to being a pastor. Because I was absolutely petrified of public speaking in middle school, high school, and surely in college. And so then I told her about this gift that I felt like God had given me just that morning. So last Saturday, our 365 reading was this. It was out of Psalm 18, 118. And so I journaled these, about these two verses, verses 6 and 7. It says this, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. And then underneath it, I wrote this phrase, and I felt like this was such a gift from God to me that day. Four words, step into the miracle. What's a miracle? A miracle is the times when we look and we say, well, that wasn't possible in my own might. No, that happened because God showed up. That was a God thing. And I felt like the Lord was pushing me to step into the miracle. And here's what I just wonder, and I think about us this morning as we think about living intentionally and with urgency. I wonder how often we actually limit the, the capabilities of God in our life because in essence, we continue to operate in just our own strength. 
In essence, we don't step into the miracle. We just continue to live in our own strength. And I wonder if oftentimes we miss out on what God would long to do if we would just step in with his strength. The power of his spirit moving in and through us. What would it be like if instead of, um, you know, shying away when things became fearful, what would it be like if we actually leaned in, if we stepped into it and we said, Lord, I just want to, I'm just going to step into the miracle. So the next morning I get up and I'm coming, you know, getting ready to come here and I grab my backpack and around my backpack is this note from Ashlyn. Step into the miracle, Dad. So then I go to the refrigerator to get my coffee protein shake out, and I see that there's a banana propped up against it, and it says this, step into the miracle. You know what she was saying to me? Dad, step into the miracle. Come on, Dad. Don't say no when God wants to say yes. Come on, Dad. Have faith. Come on, Dad. Live for things that matter most. Come on. Don't live a safe life. Step into the miracle. Step into the miracle. When you doubt, step in. Why? Because you're stepping out of you and into the power of God. And I just wonder, church, if when you and I lean in and we say, Lord, I want to live with a sense of urgency. I want to live with a sense of intentionality. I wonder what it would be like when we feel like it's a risk if we would just say, you know what? Today I'm just going to step into the miracle. I'm just going to step in and say, Only God can do this. We'll see what he does. What would it be like if we just leaned in? Three things I want you to take from the text this morning. Here they are in review. Number one, a very clear, and I hope it's a pretty weighty even, reminder of eternity, eternal realities. Number two, a call to live with a sense of urgency and intentionality. And then number three, the last one, It's an opportunity to respond. For you this morning, maybe your response is this. Okay, now that I've heard and I've been reminded maybe to step out of the fray a little bit, now this morning I say, I will live with a deeper sense of urgency. I'll look at people differently. I'll be so thankful that the gospel has come to me. What a gift. I won't keep it to myself. Or maybe for you this morning, you hear, the, hear this parable and you hear the teachings of the scriptures and you understand now, you go, okay, so there's a chasm between myself and a holy God and you understand that one day you will stand before a holy God and you will be judged. We all will. And on that day, you want to be able to stand in the grace of Jesus Christ because not only did he love you enough to die for you, but then he proved that he was God by rising from the grave. And so he's surely able to forgive your sins. And on that day, you can cling to him and our holy God will not look at you and judge you based on your sin. He will look at you and he will judge you based on the sacrifice that his son made for you. And there is no greater news than that. And so maybe for you this morning, you say these two words, I believe. You might not have all the answers. None of us do, actually. But maybe you have enough this morning to say, I believe. And know this, there is no one that can draw you to God other than God himself. No one. Nobody on this state, no one can draw you to God other than God himself. But one thing we say around here quite a bit is this, When God nudges you, when the Spirit of God awakens you to truth, we say, don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. Maybe this morning's the morning you say, I believe. I believe. So yeah, let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, I thank you.
I thank you for this text. I thank you for the way that you lead us, God. And Lord, we pray that this would lead us to a renewed sense of urgency. Lord, we pray that this would lead us to rejoice in the salvation that we have if we know you. And then to be able to enthusiastically share that with other people, Lord. You did not put us here for nothing. You've given us such an incredible gift. And then, Lord, I pray for the person that's here today. Lord, might they step across the line today. If that's you and the gospel's come to life for you today. And you realize that God allows you to know him, not just for when you die, but he allows you to know him and to live in communion with him from this day forward. It's an incredible journey. Would you just say to him this morning, I believe. Would you begin that faith journey? Would you say to him right now, right where you're at, just say it. I believe. I believe. I believe you died. I believe I can know you. I believe I'm forgiven through you. I believe. Lord, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen.